This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's Friday, June 23rd. Coming up on the show today, Congressman French Hill, chair of the House Subcommittee on Digital Assets. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about the biggest technology of all, video games. If you've missed any of these fascinating episodes, the links to them all are in the show notes today. I encourage you to check them out. Today is our last installment on the subject, and obviously, if you're going to be in the metaverse playing video games, and yeah, you will be, it's going to be a big part of your future, it means we need to make sure that you're protecting yourself. And so today, as we end our two-week series on video gaming, I want to talk about personal cyber insurance. If you don't have it, you need to get it. A cyber issue could easily cost you thousands of dollars in losses. Over the past five years, the FBI says they've gotten 3 million complaints just about personal cyber attacks. People have lost a total of $28 billion, and it's getting worse. Last year, there were 800,000 complaints in one year alone, 10 billion in losses. And by the way, you think you've got identity theft protection in your credit card? Forget it. That's not enough. You need a personal cyber policy that includes protection against cyber bullying or your personal information being used in a malicious or damaging way. With people playing games in the metaverse, with you doing stuff online, with your avatar engaged online in ways never before, you need to protect yourself. Now, the good news is all the big insurance companies offer cyber insurance, AIG, Berkeley One, Chubb, Cincinnati, Pure, State Farm, you name it. Most offer it as an add-on to your homeowner's policy or your renter's policy. Some companies will let you buy this special cyber insurance protection as a standalone policy as well. The policies usually cover reputational damage from a cyber attack, money lost to social engineering fraud, ransomware attack remediation, data restoration, identity theft, cyberbullying. Some of the policies even give you 24-7 access to experts if you're a victim. Some will also give you tech support, legal advice. You even get psychological counseling because of the emotional harm that can be inflicted if you become a victim. These policies are not expensive, $300 or less, and you get anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 in benefits. Of course, like with all insurance, the more you pay for the policy, the more you get in benefits. So talk to your homeowner's insurance agent if cyber coverage is part of your current policy. If it's not, it's pretty easy to get what you need. But it's definitely, as we move more and more into the world of virtual living, such as through video gaming, that we protect ourselves in our online lives, just as we do in our physical ones. I'm Rick Edelman. Hope you've enjoyed our two-week series on video games. Coming up next on The Truth About Your Future, my conversation with Congressman French Hill, chair of the House Subcommittee on Digital Assets. Stay with us right here for more on The Truth About Your Future.
Lately, it seems like buzz around ChatGPT and the potential of generative AI is everywhere. But this trend didn't appear from the blue. It reflects years of innovation by many leading-edge companies. Looking to add AI exposure to your portfolio? Rather than try to pick individual winners, consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks across the emerging AI frontier. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Do you know anyone who's a new investor? You can help make it easier for them to get started. With the new Schwab Starter Kit, new investors can open an account and get $101 to split across the top five stocks in the S&P 500. Those are companies they actually recognize, like Amazon, Apple, and Google. There are also videos, guides, and other helpful tools, plus investment professionals 24-7 to answer their questions. To see the current top five stocks and learn more about the Schwab Starter Kit, go to schwab.com slash starter kit. Welcome back to the show. A couple of weeks ago, I hosted the fifth annual Vision Conference in Austin. It's presented by my company, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, DACFP. Vision is the longest-running digital assets investment conference that's specifically for financial advisors and accredited investors. And at this year's conference, it was our biggest ever, attended by more than 125 financial advisors and investment professionals from all over the country. One of our keynote speakers was U.S. Representative French Hill. He chairs the House Subcommittee on Digital Assets. I wanted to share that entire conversation with you today. Here it is, unabridged and uncensored. The audience at this conference, Congressman, is comprised entirely of financial advisors who want to learn the latest about blockchain and digital assets. You are the vice chair of the House Financial Services Committee, and you chair the subcommittee on digital assets, financial technology, and inclusion. On June 2nd, as you know, the chair of the Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry, and the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, Glenn Thompson, jointly introduced long-awaited legislation on crypto. And among other features in the bill, it answers the big question, are crypto assets commodities or securities? Tell us what the bill says. Well, Rick, it's great to be with you. And I spent uh, four decades in the financial services business, including running three different brokerage uh, operations. So uh, it's good to be with you and be with your uh, audience of financial advisors. And this has definitely been an emerging issue. I was very intrigued by uh, the background I read that the vast majority of your financial advisors personally invest in crypto, but only a very, very small number recommended for their clients. And I think if I was in the same boat, I wouldn't be in uh, either camp. I wouldn't be recommending it and I wouldn't have invested in it uh, either to this point. And part of that's because I don't think you have the kind of transparency to make a good business decision. And I'll cite FTX as uh, People's Exhibit A when you have Sequoia and some of the top rated venture firms in the world jump into that. And the first question I ask is, well, who did the due diligence on that dumb idea? So that's why I think this regulatory framework is critical. And I wish we'd done it before. Um, 
we had a fintech task force that I chaired uh, almost uh, four years ago now. And that was the beginning of the education of our members, Democrat and Republican, about all things digital and how fintech was going to revolutionize uh, both uh, finance on the customer acquisition side and the back uh, house uh, compliance side. That's one of the big challenges, isn't it? Is that there has been a lack of regulatory clarity. We have a lot of players. You cited FTX as a you know the poster child of the bad boy of this business, operating in an unregulated environment, offshore predominantly, where investors are not getting advice from their financial advisors because the advisory community is not engaging for the very reason that you cited. There isn't regulatory clarity. Their firms are concerned that they don't know what the rules are. They're telling their advisors to simply stay away. But the problem is investors are not staying away themselves. Over 22% of U.S. adults own crypto, but they're not doing it with the benefit of their financial advisors, which means they're likely engaging in crypto in an extraordinarily dangerous way. It's already a dangerous asset. We know how volatile and risky and uncertain it is, but we're piling on by forcing investors to engage without the aid of their advisor. So that's why we're very encouraged by this bill, which we are hopeful will provide those rules of the road. Do you feel the same way that this bill, if it does pass, will give the financial services industry the confidence to finally engage in this asset class? Yeah, I do. I think it takes away the uh, very haphazard, schizophrenic way that the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission, have dealt with this under both the Trump administration and the and the Biden administration. It's particularly bad now under Chairman Gensler, but it wasn't terrific under Chairman Clayton as it relates to making you know strong uh, progress and bringing a great deal of clarity. Although I'll give the Trump administration credit, both in the banking regulatory sector uh, and in the security sector, uh, you know, offering some clarity on things like custody and state trust charters and uh, some foundational elements. But this bill goes way beyond that. This defines what's a security, what's not a security. This defines how you do uh, uh, liquidity for uh, those entities that are still trading as securities, but not yet decentralized. It goes into great detail on how one becomes decentralized and how's that certified. It talks about how uh, dealers, brokers, exchanges are all registered for digital assets. It defines uh, how that will work. It defines what is in the SEC's protocols and purview and that for the CFTC. Um, so I think it's a very comprehensive market structure bill. It, it deals with custody, no commingling. Uh, it deals with basically all the principal uh, evidence of fraud and mismanagement that we've seen in uh, the FTX collapse. And I think it brings clarity uh, to uh, the current trading platforms where uh, one doesn't really know uh, what the situation is. And you've now got the SEC uncertainty about declaring essentially all tokens as securities. And so therefore, I think it also clears up what you might consider listing standards for a trading platform where something uh, needs to be located. So this bill brings clarity. And then we wrote another piece of uh, legislation that's also pending that defines the rules of the road and the quality issues in and around payment stable coins, which are also a critical part of the ecosystem. 
And we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Uh, yeah. I, I note that uh, since the bill was introduced, support for it in the crypto community has been very strong. Uh, what's been the reaction among your colleagues in the House? Well, uh, it's, I'd say, mixed. Uh, this is a heavy lift. Uh, we've done a lot in the education format, but we don't have the same level of detailed knowledge among members about market structure and the differences between SEC and CFTC rulemaking uh, than we would have on payment stable coins, where we've had many, many more months of, I'd say, member comfort. So members are learning about this as uh, we've done roundtables in the last uh, five or six weeks. We've met with individual members and member staffs about this draft. Uh, we've asked for their comments uh, by the uh, uh, middle part of next week, towards the end of next week. Um, so you're right. It's been a either lean forward, positive or muted response uh, from the industry. And members are just asking all their most uh, basic questions. Uh, but you'll see that uh, continue to advance over the next two or three, uh, four weeks as we do more work in the in the committee on it. Uh, it's, it's, this is not a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. We have strong Democratic and Republican interest in this issue, both uh, on the House side and, and the Senate side, as you, as you know. So are you hopeful that uh, in the Senate, where the Democrats have the majority, that it will pass there as well? Well, Senators Loomis and Gillibrand are considering reintroducing their market structure and payment stablecoin legislation that they had an early version of last summer. There, we've met uh, with them, obviously, and they are uh, glad to see the intensive work we're doing in the House on drafting and the concepts that we're spelling out that may uh, assist them in what they're doing. But we look forward to hearing their best ideas in the Senate on the approach that they might take. Both New York and Wyoming, of course, have very um, strong leadership positions at the state level. So I think you'll see them put an emphasis on that state pathway uh, that we outline in the payment stablecoin bill. And in fact, let's shift over to stable coins now. Yeah. Many argued that this is the low-hanging fruit, easier for Congress to pass legislation on stable coins than on crypto in general, because it's the most controversial element of crypto, which is price volatility. And related to stable coins yeah. are CBDCs, central bank digital currency. And what I've observed is that there are lots of members of Congress who like crypto, but they don't like the idea of the Fed launching a CBDC. Talk about your position on this. Yeah. Well, I've, I've introduced a bill in the last couple of weeks with Jake Auchincloss, uh, who is a Democratic member from the Boston area, used to be on the Financial Services Committee. And uh, we both introduced this bill together to send a bipartisan message that we oppose a, a central bank digital currency that's not authorized and designed by Congress. This is not anything that we think the Fed or the Treasury can do on their own. And I would say generally on a bipartisan basis, a vast majority of Republicans and Democrats are opposed to any sort of a retail CBDC. Now, this gets confusing to a lot of constituents. I talk about this issue all the time. I mean, we even have members of Congress who have alleged on Twitter that FedNow, which is same-day settlement real-time payment technology, 
which the private sector has and the Fed is going to roll out is that that's a CBDC. So there's a lot of misinformation out there about payment infrastructure. But I think it's safe to say a majority of, of members don't support a retail CBDC. This is the type of effort where you would bank at the Fed, you'd have debits and credits at an account at the Fed in your name, you would tokenize all those payments using a government-issued CBDC. I just don't know um, anybody advocating for that. Uh, and the only country that's really tried it in a in a at scale sort of way is China. I'm not sure it's working so well, frankly. And in our in our country, I just think that's not going to happen. So, what's the alternative to that? It's letting the private sector innovate. Let the private sector uh, think through a tokenized payment on a blockchain uh, facilitated by a payment stablecoin. And that's why we've emphasized this bill to create what's the def definition of a quality one? How can bank and non-bank issuers participate in that market to create competition in this new emerging payment uh, mechanism? So I think that I hope that's helpful to people on this topic. Uh, a lot of research still being done on CBDCs uh, and a lot of hype from 2018 out there, uh, but it's not ready for prime time in a big, developed, rich country like the U.S. with excellent payment infrastructure, in my view, when the whole idea of distributed ledger payments is also a fledgling, you know, startup type business now. I don't think that's going to be aided by having the government get involved in it. But if you have some financial advisors who love banking at the post office, then maybe this is the next best uh, idea for them. So let's drill down a little bit on this. Yeah. Um, you've yeah. articulated very well uh, your opposition to a CBDC, a uh, retail um, interaction between consumers and the Fed. And yeah. you've articulated very well that the majority of members of Congress agree with you and that means this is dead in the water. What you haven't said, which I'd like you to elaborate on, yeah. is why you feel this way. Yeah. Because this strikes me as a philosophical conversation, not a technological one. If you like stable coins, then CBDCs are basically, that's a stable coin, simply one that's issued by the Fed rather than the private sector. So articulate for us why you object to the notion of a Fed version of a stable coin relative to a private market sector stable coin. Well, both do bring up questions of, uh, you know, fiat money in a tokenized environment and how that impacts bank reserves and the conduct of monetary policy. So there are similarities that have public policy concern there. I'm always biased towards private sector innovation in fledgling startup environments and not have the government put its thumbprint on it saying we're going to issue this and this is all there is. So that's number one. Number two is uh, it's not clear to me that it's needed yet. Even if you project forward many, many years and a ubiquitous Web3 type payment and a ubiquitous use of distributed ledgers and tokenized, remember, this is the key point, tokenized payments on a ledger uh, because uh, the vast majority of Americans may buy, sell, settle, and, and organize their lives quite happily through faster same-day settlement real-time payments using their existing financial infrastructure, which is also speeding up and improving 
and they just won't be engaging that frequently here in the short run on a distributed ledger type token. Now, at the wholesale level, between banks, between central banks, inside companies, uh, particularly global multinational companies, I certainly envision people using distributed ledger technology to clear trades, clear activity, reduce agency costs. And I think they will settle in some sort of a tokenized payment, whether it's inside JP Morgan Chase's Onyx program for their international customers or a white label version of that for other businesses. And you certainly see it in global. I think you see it more and more in global fixed income trade settlements. So number one, no, because we don't need to start out with the government putting its thumb on the scale and saying all transactions in a tokenized dollar payment have to use the US CBDC. That's kind of my view. Uh, and then that allows some experimentation. And years from now, maybe we'll think that's something we want to do. But then I would argue it has to be authorized by Congress under Article 1 as it relates to coining you know, coining money, because this would be, in effect, coining money. Several folks point to what happened in Canada last year when the truckers blockaded the bridge and the Canadian government froze their bank accounts in an effort to get them to break up their blockade. And many people argued that a Federal Reserve CBDC would be that on steroids, that it would create too much opportunity for government control if your money is directly tied to the Fed via a CBDC. Do you share that view as yet another reason for not favoring the notion of a Federal Reserve CBDC? I do. I've spoken you know, this morning in answering your question sort of in economic terms. But if you look at it in a personal choice term, you've got a real risk to privacy and a real risk of government control and surveillance there because you're centralizing all data flowing back through you know, a government uh, entity. We already have this problem. It's why I oppose the, uh, um, uh, you know, collection of all stock trades. It's why uh, at the SEC, it's why I, I oppose collecting all, every credit card transaction at the CFPB. It, it, these government databases have no privacy uh, protections that are sufficient. They aren't cyber protected like they should be. The loss of personal information is a high risk. So why would we do that on steroids? Or why would we even give the appearance of trying to surveil people's payments or purchases or behavior? So I think it's not consistent with the Fourth Amendment. I think if people make that argument, they're not wrong. I think they're taking it to an extreme on steroids that is um, a low probability event, you know, in our country, the way we're structured. But I just argue that because of our financial infrastructure, our large economic size, our diverse financial services system, uh, we're better off letting the private sector innovate here. But I don't see any evidence that a CBDC in China is successful except in surveilling people. I don't see it being successful in the Bahamas. It's got a lot of, of uh, you know, publicity around it as it relates to making anybody's life easier. Uh, the only people I see advocating this are a few far left progressive people who I think believe that it will create a new age of Aquarius where we're all at peace and harmony and, and have equal wealth and whatever. You know, I think it's nuts. So, but I do think it's fair on economic grounds 
uh, private sector innovation for, uh, grounds and on this uh, personal privacy grounds that, you know, it's just not ready for, the idea is not ready for prime time and it doesn't have broad support. Let me shift over to the SEC now. Uh, about a month ago, there was a hearing, as you know, uh, where SEC Chair Gary Gensler testified. Everyone here at this conference has seen the chairman's dialogue with Gary Gensler, uh, where Congressman McHenry tried to get uh, Mr. Gensler to answer a simple and direct question of whether Ethereum is a commodity or a security. And of course, as you know, the chair of the SEC evaded the question. Uh, were you surprised that he refused to answer that question? I'm never surprised when uh, Chairman Gensler refuses to answer a question, but I got a big kick that at the end of the hearing, at the last question by Congressman Donalds, that he was forced to answer, yes, he did write the check for the Steele dossier as the chief financial officer of the Clinton campaign. So anyway, there was at least one admission during uh, the day. Look, uh, Chairman Gensler knows a lot about this industry because he he tells us he does, and he taught a course in apparently distributed ledger blockchain innovation at MIT. But I don't believe he's handled any of this very effectively. He has been an impediment uh, in the stablecoin work between the White House, the Fed, the House, and Senate. And here, I, it, it's because he won't answer questions like that He's been a bit of an impediment for having a reasonable conversation about this market structure bill that we've worked on and written over the past three or four months. And think about this, Rick. I mean, you know, he could have, through using his exemptive relief authority, built out many of the points that we have in this bill by using the commission to do some rulemaking proposals and grant some exemptive relief. And he's just chosen just plain and simple not to do that. Um, we have tried to make it as simple as straightforward as possible. And we're going to continue to refine our draft. We invite everybody who's watching to send us comments on the draft. It's posted out there for people to, to read. And the SEC part is about a third of the draft. And the other two thirds are setting up that regime in the CFTC because they don't have the same approach to oversight that the SEC does. So we've had to build that out. It's quite more extensive in the commodity arena. You you sound frustrated about Gary Gensler. Uh, Patrick McHenry has shared his views of frustration as well. It got to the point that a member of your committee, Congressman Warren Davidson, who represents the 8th District of Ohio, introduced a bill to fire Gary Gensler. Uh, citing what he called Gensler's abuse of power and failure to protect investors. What's your viewpoint of Congressman Davidson's bill? Well, first, Warren uh, is one of my close uh, colleagues, and he is the vice chairman of our Digital Assets Committee. He has been a real leader in thinking about uh, the response to distributed ledger technology, blockchain, not only for its use in government, but also how to facilitate uh, it in our economy. So Warren is a very good thinker in this arena. That frustration, he voiced it in this messaging bill uh, about Chair Gensler. I don't see that bill uh, moving. I'd rather see Gary Gensler submit uh, all the answers to the questions that we've asked on FTX directly, where I think uh, at the heart of where Warren's going. And if he doesn't, uh, I support the committee's subpoena 
tracking all those conversations, records, interactions between the SEC staff or any commissioner and FTX officials or anybody representing FTX. And if he doesn't answer the subpoena, then I would certainly be willing to work uh, with whatever the legal ramifications are for holding him you know, in contempt. These are the kinds of things I think we have authority and we don't run the executive branch. So we we don't have the ability to fire executive branch uh, officials. Uh, you know, under some circumstances, we could uh, impeach somebody. But the steps I've outlined are what we should undertake that. And I think that will hold Gary Gensler's feet to the fire on this. Um, think about this last year during the calendar year. Uh, he was saying, come in and register. He was saying, let me work with you. Uh, let us help you do this. He was condemning Kim Kardashian for promoting crypto. But do you recall anything before the collapse of FTX where Gary Gensler had publicly talked about that? The answer is no. That's been frustrating to me because we turned the new page on the year, 2023, and suddenly the SEC is swept into every enforcement action you can think of. And so as a business guy for four decades, that looks like CYA to me. I'm not saying it is because I also have an appreciation for um, how government works and how enforcement cases are developed and worked on for many, many, many months. But it it's questionable to me about FTX to protect investors. You have more creditors than you had ever in a case much bigger than Madoff. So I want to know what he knew in the years uh, that he was in office leading up to that crisis. And we have the more recent scandal developing regarding Binance uh, yeah. and also the lawsuit against Coinbase. Let's take a, a look at them one by one. Yeah. These these uh, enforcement actions have occurred over the past two weeks. And Binance, many argue, is kind of similar to FTX. Um, what's your view of, of this situation, both Binance itself and the SEC's lawsuit against Binance? Yeah, I think, you know, the Binance, uh, I think it would be fair to say that Binance is, since it's offshore, uh, you know, and op more opaque to uh, he us here in the United States, that that's a fair description. And of course, the SEC is still supposed to ascertain, are they protecting any U.S. investors or U.S. engagement with the facility, even if it's, you know, outside the jurisdiction of the U.S. as an entity? And I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence on that. Coinbase, of course, is a public company in the U.S., which means it went to the SEC, had the SEC reviewed its S-1, and the SEC granted its approval to go public. Uh, and I think Coinbase has consistently, because of its responsibility as a public company, attempted to continue to refine its business completely in, uh, I would say, conjunction with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And yet it's had been frustrated at every step of the way, which prompts that lawsuit. Here's my view on all of this. Our market structure bill would clear up, I don't want to say 100% of these issues and challenges in and around all of these entities, because I don't know, you know, 100% is a big statement. But I'm going to say it's going to clear up the vast majority of the assertions of what Mr. Gensler and others are saying is not being done to whatever standard Gary's set. And that's the whole problem is he won't do that. So we do that for him. And we think 
what we've done is consistent with what President Biden has urged be done through the president's working group on stable coins, through the president's working group on digital assets, through the review of the FSOC, through even the commentary in the Council on Economic Advisors uh, annual report that came out a few weeks ago. So it's a frustrating time. And if you're in the industry, it's frustrating, but it accounts for why your financial advisors can't really in good faith suggest a retail investor participate in this market. How would you monitor it? How would you do due diligence? How would you custody it? How would you help advise them? How would you even be able to guide them as a friend about how they might handle it in their own wallet? Uh, so we will clear up this and we will make America a very innovative place and bring capital back to our country if we get this right. And what is so frustrating, it seems to be a contradiction in what's going on. You you articulated it very well when you noted that some half of the nation's financial advisors personally own yeah. crypto, but very few, around 10%, are talking about it with clients because of the regulatory uncertainty and, and they don't know what they're allowed to say or, or how yeah. to uh, deal with it. But consumers are doing this on their own. A, a new study just came out last week. Uh, from several different sources uh, on consumer behavior regarding crypto, showing that over the past year, the number of Americans who own crypto, who bought Bitcoin or Ethereum for the first time, rose. Despite the fact that Bitcoin was falling 70% in 2022, the consumer interest in this is strong, stable, and rising. And they're doing it on their own without the engagement of the financial industry. So it seems to me that we don't really have much of a choice. I almost put it in the context of prohibition. We didn't stop anybody yeah. from drinking. We yeah. just, you know, yeah. made them drink rot gut. So are you confident that this will in fact provide the clarity that will allow the financial services industry, the nation's brokerage firms, investment advisory firms, wealth managers to engage with their clients, to provide the level of advice and services that they're providing clients in every other aspect of their personal finances? Yeah, I really do. And I base that on the fact that I've, as I said, four decades of personal experience uh, in the industry. Heck, I started typing uh, confirmation with carbon paper in 1974 in a brokerage firm. So I know, I, I know about this business. Uh, yeah, I really do. And I think that then gives the investors uh, a, a uh, rubric around which how to judge whether an investment's got potential or not, right? Including uh, consumers, how they would participate in a tokenized uh, distributed ledger product service offering, give them some confidence. Uh, payment stable coins. We actually uh, put stable in the word stable coin in this bill, and you could have confidence that you'd have daily knowledge about the liquidity and dollar for dollar uh, representation that's being told to you, you know, by the internet website for the stable coin. And all of that will then also inform uh, financial advisors, how would you get liquidity? Where would you trade it? How would it be useful? Or is it something that would be uh, traded in a different way? Uh, so I think we tackle this. Uh, we tackle custody. We tackle the commingling issue to protect people's assets. So we've worked really hard to bring clarity here, including as I say, based on some of the malfeasance that we've seen as highlighted in the FTX collapse or even mentioned 
in the assertions in the SEC complaints. So given the current state of crypto in terms of regulatory and legislative status, what would you say to financial advisors in terms of them talking to their clients about digital assets? Yeah. Well, I think the most important thing uh, we can do with with clients is exactly what you're doing through your association and uh, the education you provide. I think educating people how this is going to work, uh, how it will work, how they need to think about it from a due diligence point of view, how it fits into uh, their you know, short-term investment goals and longer-term investment goals. But I really think you're going to see, uh, you know, in my judgment, let's say th- this industry has obviously, you know, been moving uh, and developing over about a decade or more. But, you know, a lot of people can't explain the use case for precisely how they see it coming to pass, you know, outside the fact that uh, a lot of people are more familiar with Bitcoin as a uh, as an entity. And I think that's going to speed up if we have a framework. In other words, I think people will now have vision on, oh, I understand now because I see it in my own life. I see how people are using distributed ledger blockchain technology with a tokenized payment to achieve X or achieve Y or offer me a service that I didn't have access to or lower the costs to me of a service I do now. I see that both business to business and I see it business to consumer and I, of course, see it peer to peer. So having said that, it sounds to me that you're bullish on crypto, that once your bill goes through Congress and is signed into law and the regulatory and legislative clarity is largely in place, you know, yeah. 100%, but as you said, the vast majority of it clarified, that this will allow, I'm putting words in your mouth, I want you to tell me if this is yeah. yes or no. Okay that this will allow the financial services industry to have the confidence that they can engage to a degree they're not currently engaging. And that therefore, this is sounds to me that you're bullish on this asset class and, and the price of these coins and tokens. Is that fair to put those words in your mouth? Well, I think I am. I believe that this framework will facilitate investors uh, separating the sheep from the goats uh, more effectively. Uh, and that they'll know what is decentralized and what is uh, not. And they'll be able to better ascertain what has upside potential and how to measure that. And it will create a much more transparent environment and lower also the compliance risk and the structural risk that all these companies who are trying to innovate face right now. Uh, you get enthusiastic and you go, boy, that is exactly the kind of direction I think we ought to take. You invest in that token and then you find out the whole thing is shut down by some government edict. So uh, I, what I'm bullish on is transparency and clarity for investors and consumers. And I'm bullish on the framework that will bring capital back to the U.S. and make the U.S. an innovative area for Web3 Uh, creativity, because it's coming and it's coming over a period of years. But I'll close on this one point. During the boom of the internet uh, in the 90s, I was uh, running a brokerage firm uh, in Little Rock at that that time. And of course, uh, equity values uh, after the uh, Fed finished its adjustments in 94, 95, we had a a crazy uh, booming 
uh, equity market that peaked out in the NASDAQ dot, what was called the dot-com boom. Well, that's inside a regulatory framework, right? Mm -hmm. And yet between um, March of uh, 2000 and October of 2002, $5 trillion was lost as people tried to figure out, you know, uh, CMGI or whatever that company was or pets.com didn't work out or whatever. Maybe you bought Amazon at the time and you and you hung on to it. And wow, good for you. But my point is, even in a regulatory framework, business is risky. Business needs transparency and a risk assessment. And so investors uh, need the advice and counsel of a good advisor but they also need access to the data to make comparisons. Uh, and so that's why I think this bill is so important. And it is an asset class that I have strong feelings is gonna grow over the years. And I'll just also say, if you're a crypto skeptic and you're Charlie Munger and you think it's all uh, BS, uh, or if you're a, a crypto bull and you have your hoodie on right now watching this, uh, <laughs> this uh, webcast, either side, you want this framework. You want to help us get this framework passed in Congress. You need to be calling your member of Congress, your uh, senator, and tell them that this is important for American innovation, American choice, Web3, uh, future. And I'm fearful that we're treating this like it's not a technology and that it is a like a scam a little bit. Let me phrase it this way, like only a scam. And in the 90s, we refused to do that to the Internet. Telecommunications Act of 1996 and Chris Cox, former SEC chairman Chris Cox, then a congressman's Internet resolution on the House in 1996, said we don't know what this is. We really don't know what the future of it is. In fact, if you read that resolution, it's got all these clunky words in it and stuff that doesn't make any sense now about the internet. But what Chris was arguing is we shouldn't tax it out of business. We shouldn't regulate it out of business. We ought to let it progress. And then we'll tax and regulate people how they use the internet. And Chris Cox's views in stark contrast, he's a Republican, to Paul Krugman, famous liberal democratic economist that I know all of your uh, watchers here get up every morning just waiting if there's a good new Paul Krugman column to read. But Paul Krugman in 1978 said, hey, the Internet, it has no more macroeconomic benefit to the U.S. economy than the invention of the fax machine. And that so is, your argument is that that's where we are with crypto, blockchain, distributed. Yes, I really do. And, 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 and it, it, we're building the foundation for the use of this in business and in peer-to-peer -peer and in business-to-consumer applications. Can you see it in every aspect of your life right now? No, because it is a technology that's being tested, developed, thought through, different ideas bounced around, but it is definitely coming. And I see that in talking in some of the biggest businesses in the world and see how they're already using it. You know, and so because it's safer and easier and more logical to test things in a, in a wholesale manner, in a business context, uh, that just tells me that the application of, of uh, distributed ledger and digital, or I should say tokenized payments, are something you're going to see roll out along with all the other innovations that we're going to see in what we call Web3, which is the next 
next benefits of uh, a ubiquitous internet? Well, Congressman, I, I applaud your efforts along with those of Chair McHenry in the development of this legislation. Very hopeful that uh, it does reach passage in Congress and get signed by the president and keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you for the time today. Uh, that's uh, Congressman French Hill. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thanks for having me today. That's Congressman French Hill, chair of the House Subcommittee on Digital Assets, with me at the fifth annual DACFP Vision Conference in Austin. In coming weeks here on the podcast, I'll be presenting you with additional conversations from the conference. Right now, though, you can check out the photos and other highlights of Vision. It's all on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and the links are in the show notes. Hey, I'm happy to tell you about the Certificate in Blockchain and Digital Assets for Investors, Consumers, and Students. It's an online, self-paced course with a world-class faculty. Scott Stornetta, the co-inventor of blockchain technology, is on our faculty. So is Anders Bronworth from the Boston Fed and MIT. This course gives you the knowledge and the skills you need to understand blockchain and digital assets. It's just $249. You can learn all about it at DACFP.com, D-A-C-F-P.com. The link is in today's show notes. Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Amid inflation, rising rates, and a host of other economic challenges, volatility has been one of the few constants lately. But as listeners of this show know better than anyone, it's important to look past the short-term headlines and focus on the bigger picture. Despite the ups and downs of the news cycle, exponential technologies continue to advance, shaping a world of new possibilities in engineering, transportation, healthcare, and renewable energy. At Global X ETFs, we offer a diversified product lineup, including risk management solutions to navigate the storm, along with thematic strategies targeting the growth opportunities of tomorrow. Whatever your goals, visit GlobalXETFs.com to explore how our research and insights may help you achieve your goals. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, leave a review for The Truth About Your Future on Apple. I read all the reviews, and I might share yours on the air. Have a great weekend. The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truthayf.com.